Welcome to Manifold. Today, my guest is Mark Martinez. He is the director of a new documentary called Dream Big. The documentary is a love note to the 1970s in Southern California, to the golden age of bodybuilding, and to Gold's Gym in particular. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Now, I just want to start by saying everyone should watch this documentary because it is a beautiful insight into a long gone era era in Southern California, which was very unique. It's a window into a particular subculture that has become mainstream now in America, but at the time was a very fringe subculture, bodybuilding. I do want to say to all the viewers that before you watch Dream Big, which I was able to watch it on Amazon Prime, and I think I probably paid 49 cents. Uh, it was very inexpensive just to rent it for a week. But before you do that, honestly, you should watch another documentary called Pumping Iron, which came out in 1977. And played a big role in transforming America and, and making Americans aware of what bodybuilding was all about. So watch Pumping Iron and then watch Dream Big. Mark, sorry for that long monologue. I want to start by just asking you about your childhood and what got you interested in bodybuilding. Yeah, you know, um, I think when I got to to high school, well, you know, entering high school, uh, you, you uh, uh, you know, you're, you're licking the wounds from a first love gone bad, you know, and at, at that age when we're constructing, uh, who we are as a person, um, you know, the default for many and, and Joe Weider just, you know, knew this is that most guys will think, oh, I'm not enough, you know, and, and, and it's human nature. We don't look inward. We look outward, uh, you know, and outward into the mirror. And you're like, ah, you know what? <laughs> I don't look like those guys in the back of the magazine and the ads in the muscle courses. So I, I know that that was a large impetus for me. Also my freshman year, a teammate had brought the book pumping iron to school. And when I saw that, and that was the, that was the year the book was released. This was like 70 school year, 74, 75. And the photos in that one, I, I you know, grew up in Southern California. We were not that far from where those photos were taken. When you grew up as a, a native Southern Californian, you know Venice, Venice, California is is, is <laughs> not a safe place. Uh, kind of, you know, had a reputation for for a lot of oddballs back then, anyway. And uh, but it really attracted uh, you know attracted me to to at least you know start lifting a bit, you know, uh, put on a little bit of weight. And uh, it was kind of like in the back of my mind for a couple more years before in the journey to gold. But I think that was it, you know, just like, ah, oh, you know, scrawny kid, you know, let me add some muscle, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe that'll cure everything, <laughs> you know? So I, I want to dwell on this just a little bit. Now, at the beginning of the documentary, I think it's a little autobiographical, right? So I oh, think yeah. there's a shot of you with the, <laughs> the teenage girl who broke your heart. Yeah, yeah. Just as you, oh, by, by the way, a wonderful person. <laughs> But yeah. but sort of led you to feel like, oh man, I gotta do some self improvement or something. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And and you know to to be semi out of you know 
autobiographical. The owner of the gym, Ken Sprague, when we had reconnected, now he's going to do this documentary. And um, there was like five guys that were, well, I was interviewing at, at the studio up here in Northern California. And and he says, you know, I, I don't know what your structure is going to be, but you should tell your story. And I was, I was really hesitant too. I said, I just kind of want to do a almost, you know, archaeological type of overview. And he's like, I just think documentaries are much more interesting when there's a personal uh, handle you could grip onto, so to speak. So, um, yeah, I kind of did it begrudgingly, but I did. Yeah. So I'm glad you did because I think your story is every kid's story. And, uh, you know, something about the seventies is that, cause I'm a little bit younger than you, but I did live through the seventies. And, um, one of the things was people in our generation, you never really saw a big muscular guy in person. You saw it first, maybe in the comics themselves, like Captain America or Superman. That was like the first, like actual muscular, well-developed man that you ever saw. And then in the back of the comic book where the ads were, where all these weird ads teach you, trying to tell, sell you things that would make you look like that. Remember, remember all right. that? I think you yeah, referenced it. Absolutely. And so when a beautiful book of photography like Pumping Iron comes out, and we're, I'm going to show stills throughout our discussion. Sorry for the people that are listening to this as audio only. You might want to switch over and watch the YouTube version of this podcast just this once because uh, uh, Mark and I are going to discuss some of these photos, some that appear in his film and some which appear in the movie, docu uh, the movie Pumping Iron and in the book Pumping Iron. When I first saw those photos, and maybe you as well, some some of those images were the very first time I had seen an anatomically fully developed, you know, latissimus dorsi or erector spina, you know, the, the, the anatomical muscles that just normally you don't really realize what they're supposed to look like when they're fully developed. So it, it was very, had a very big impact on me when I first saw the book Pumping Iron. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. A hundred percent. I was um, just just flabbergasted because, you know, I think, you know, grow, growing up in Southern California, we were kind of, and now it doesn't matter what the internet, a fad hits anywhere. It can hit, you know, in Dubai or Kenya or New York on the same day. But, you know, it's like um, I was listening to, I'm trying to think of what, what musician it was. I think it was Danny Elfman from Oingo Boingo. And he was on a podcast and he said back, so like back in the early eighties, you know, he goes, when I was, because when we were playing in California and then we would go to the Midwest, you know, you know, we would see a difference in clothing styles because some of the styles hadn't hit yet, um, which was common. I mean, I was around, I mean, one, yeah, top level professional bodybuilders, no one saw. So yeah, that blew my mind. But in, in Southern California being a hotbed for, you know, developing athletes into the NFL or major league baseball or whatnot, you, you saw more than your fair share of guys that picked up iron, but definitely nowhere near the level of, of, you know, Arnold or Franco or Bill Grant or Frank Zay. Um, and, and those photos, you know, I mean, George Butler's photos just captured, I mean, yeah, not only the guy's physiques, but also that time and place, you know, the, the beach, <laughs> Yeah, just phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, phenomenal. So I'm going to, you mentioned already some famous names. Now, 
most of my listeners are, you know, science guys and startup founders and professors. So they're not going to know these names. We're going to go through a few photos now to just acquaint them with the young men at the time that who are now older uh, that you're talking about, who are giants from the era of the golden age of bodybuilding. Now, you mentioned Ken Sprague. He's yeah. the tall guy in the back. Yeah. Ken the is on the far, far right behind left to right. Um, and this is the Second Street Golds. This is the Santa Monica location. And on the far left, the, the gentleman with his head turned sideways was a guy we all knew was Frenchy. Um, he obviously was from France and we just knew him as Frenchy. Then, then there's Robbie Robinson, the first bodybuilder you see. And I think Robbie was the first pro bodybuilder I saw up close when I walked into Gold's in Santa Monica and, you know, just seeing not only the size of muscle, but the cross striations that you get from really advanced development, um, was just freakish, um, and then you see in the middle there, the gentleman with the mustache and glasses, that's publisher Joe Weider. Um, and then next you'll see Bill Grant, uh, who's, who's in my documentary and, and wonderful gentleman still training hard uh, in New Jersey. Um, and, uh, and then Ken, who saved golds, who bought golds, um, when it was going to go under back in 1971 and, uh, saved it from closing down. And uh, so, yeah, that's uh, left to right. For so for those of you who are just catching the audio, we're talking about a picture from the 70s. In the front are two very famous bodybuilders, uh, Robbie Robinson and Bill Grant, who are both African-American. And uh, this guy, Ken Sprague, who saved golds when it got into financial trouble, is in the background. And Joe Weider, I think, has even like maybe received his own biopic at this point. Like he's the the business mind that really uh, grew bodybuilding from nothing into a, a, a multi-million dollar empire. Um, you know, George, George Butler, when he was making pumping iron, had said, you know, Arnold was famous within his world, but it was a very small world. And, and um, I mean, one, Joe I deeply loved bodybuilding, I'm sure, but he could only grow it so much. I, I think uh, the conduit that, helped Joe access a much wider audience was the writer Charles Gaines and the filmmaker George Butler. I think without those guys, um, you know, we wouldn't even be having these discussions today. I mean, who knows, right? You can only guess. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Um, the photos, you know, the, the, if you think of photography as an art, the book pumping iron is a work of art and the prose. The prose in yep. that book is actually phenomenal. So the, those are two super talented guys. We'll show you a photo of them in just a second who somehow got the tip that this was a cool thing happening and they just went and explored it and helped to blow it up. Yeah. Um, Wait, oh, I'm sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say before we leave this photo for the people that are watching who can see it, like probably you're familiar with what people mean when they say he has a six pack or he has an eight pack. They're talking about the abs. But both of these guys are so defined. You can see their serratus, which is a small set of muscles on either side of the abs, which most people will never know they have serratus. But like, if you look at a top level bodybuilder, you can see that. And it's an example of something about the human anatomy, 
that like when we, when I was growing up in the seventies, I first saw these pictures. I was like, what is that? Yeah. So let me, let me, let me just jump through a couple of these photos and uh, we will talk some more. This is from the book pumping iron. This is Arnold working out. Um, he's doing incline presses in one picture and he's doing pullovers with a barbell in another photo. And um, maybe you can say a little bit, was this the original Golds? That, that was, that was the original Golds on, on Pacific Avenue. And that was, uh, obviously, these are the George Butler photos. And um, what's great about one, because it's taken, this is photography from an artist. So, uh, you know, in like a bodybuilding magazine or probably a how-to book, you know, the, the, uh, the, the camera angle, you know, is going to show something totally different, like how to properly perform this exercise or whatever. And here it's great. He's just that overhead shot where, you know, Arnold is laying on the bench and it's just a totally different perspective. And then also the incline breast shots, this, the uh, incline press shots, the series of them, it's, it's more of a, I have, you know, I have, you know, eye in the sky type of look down that I think is really, really uh, interesting. Um, just wonderful what, photos. What hit me when I as a kid and I saw these photos was number one, you can see the pain that Arnold is the the, the concentration and the pain that he's enduring. And in in the incline press, which was actually my favorite movement, upper body movement when I was growing up, um, you can see his eyes on the bar and they're bugging out when as he tries to get the last few reps, his his, his eyes look like they're about to explode out of his head. Yeah. So really these are black and white photos and they just really give you a sense of what it's like to train with weights yeah yeah it's kind of, you know they said he he spoke a lot about uh mind muscle connection and um i i you know you kind of just kind of like blow it off when you're young and you don't really don't think about it all that much you're just worried about hoisting the weight but i think it's really true i think when some people they decide to exercise and, and at any sort of exercise if the results kind of slow down, then we have to think, oh, we have to be mindful and present in the moment of what we're actually doing. And that's probably, you know, what helps any sort of results right? rather than just going through the motions. Absolutely. I think this level of intensity, people just were not prepared for. Like, I think in the 70s, like, what, what did anyone do? They jogged around the block or something. Maybe if they played some really serious a competitive sport like wrestling or something they could be familiar with this level of intensity but most people weren't oh yeah for sure yeah, yeah i mean yeah the, the people that were lifting weights in gyms was such a small percentage of the population this is another um photo from from pumping iron and you could see the uh the light coming through the the front windows of course here the contrast it just looks like it's like a white wall but it's actually the the foggy morning and uh you can see arnold flexing his legs behind you know the reflection in the mirror from the dumbbell rack um yeah great yeah great stuff and you know back then you know ken, you know ken sprague said he goes there were barely any more than 10 people in the gym uh, you know uh, during that time i mean that's why arnold walked around with bare feet you know <laughs> There was no one's going to drop a weight on anybody. There wasn't a whole lot of people there. Oh, uh, it's insane. Yeah, they were so casual. They were just wearing just crappy clothes. And, you know, the Pacific Ocean was not very far away. And yeah, Arnold's barefoot in the gym. 
yeah. behind him is Ken Waller, I think, who yeah, plays Ken, a big role. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, that's Ken to the camera, camera right. And then to the left of him is, uh, uh, he was a European bodybuilder. He's mentioned in the book. I think that's Pierre Vandersloot. Belgium. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's from Belgium, yes. Um, as Pierre. Um, Pierre who, Vanden something. Yeah, that was Vandenstein. I mean, yeah, I can't recall right off the top of my head, but ripped to the bone, uh, you know, muscularity as, as they call it, just, you know, very, very low body fat level he was known for. Yep. Now, for those of you that can't see the photo, Arnold is in the front. This is shot through a mirror. The mirror is behind the dumbbell rack and the photographer has got the, the camera pointed at the mirror. So he's, he's looking at Arnold's reflection and Arnold pulling up his gym shorts to reveal the development of his upper quads, the striations or the, 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 the distinguished muscles of the different heads of the quads. And, um, you know, it's called check posing, which bodybuilders would do, uh, or just inspecting their muscle. And I think to most Americans at that time, you would, if uh, for a man to do that, you would be considered just narcissistic. It would be considered just wrong and kind of, I think at the time people would have said it's kind of gay for you to be looking at your muscles like that. But everything changed, I think, culturally because of this book and, and subsequent things. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Here's a full-blown picture of Arnold straight on. You can see just how massively developed he is. He's in contest shape here. Um, I think this is from the book, Pumping Iron. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe the second edition or something, the later edition. It probably did, did, did come from the second edition. Um, I, um, I had, the, for, I had the, um, obviously, the original. And I think that's from a contest in New York. And the only reason, I, which would be pre-75, but... Or, or this could be from 1980. No, it's not from 1980. It's from 74. And I think if you could see uh, the gentleman between uh, where Arnold's right arm would be frame left, there's a gentleman sitting there, like a large, a large guy in a blazer with like a judge's badge. I think that's a, a professional wrestler, Brunar San Martino. Um, so there's some getting in the weeds trivia. Mark you you are a pro because just getting to the weeds here. I was looking at this photo and I was thinking, this is not Sydney. This is not Arnold. And when he came back in 1980, and he wasn't really in peak form. This looks like Arnold in peak form. So I was trying to place it, and it's not the competition that's in the movie Pumping Iron where he's yeah. in South Africa. So I I couldn't quite figure out where this was taken. Yeah, I mean, and I had to I come through so many photos, and then also uh, just when I was interviewing. Uh, Charles Gaines at his home in Alabama and I spent a few days with them and, you know, and it was time to say goodbye. And, and I brought uh, several of his books for him to sign, uh, for me, you know, being, being the fanboy, you know, he's, he's written uh, several nonfiction books and a novel. And, um, yeah, he said, yeah, he goes, Oh, I'm glad you brought the original. He goes, I never liked any of the reissues. You know, they changed the cover of the book. They changed. Uh, some photos within, and I've never even looked at them. I look at the cover and I don't even open the book of the newer reissues. But he said, yeah, they changed quite a few things in the, the newer ones. So I guess kind of update them. But he goes, it just, to me, just, he goes, I never cared for much. 
I, uh, I think I have a second edition. So it has some of the 1980 competition in it, for example. Oh, is that the one with Tom Platt's on the cover and not head? Yes. Okay. Yes. It's got Tom Platt's in color on the cover. Yeah. Well, that's, I'm sure it's also a publishing decision. They're like, Hey, look, guys, let's put a color photo on it and get someone more contemporary and we got to move some units. So. Yep. No, it's understandable. <laughs> this photo I love, and this is in the book. It caught my eye when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, and it's never always stayed with me. Two things about, well, three things. One, obviously the Southern California, the palm trees, the, the camaraderie, the, the, this, the, 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 the fun, the casual nature of the relationship between Arnold and Franco. Franco's hanging upside down yeah. from a bar. Uh, they're training outdoors. And then, of course, there are two beautiful girls there in bikinis who, are, who they're hanging out with. So I think one of the best photos, I think, uh, that captures the whole milieu. Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, just <clears throat> Arnold's condition there, you know, just you look at the size of the trapezius muscles and... I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it, it, this is 19, I think they took these photos in 72 or 73, which really puts it in perspective that his level of development and Franco's and a few of the other top guys were there at that point in time. And that's at the, the weight pit in, in Venice, which was, uh, you know, the original gold was a couple blocks up and about a block or two down, but you could see like the little benches there, which now that place is all, um, uh, you know, it's all upgraded and it's got like a nice, uh, uh, cemented type, almost miniature amphitheater type look to the, to the, to the seating area. And there you see like little wooden little league benches, you know, which is what it was like for many, many, many years. Yeah. Just a foggy morning in Venice. Incredible. I, I think I, I think you say this several times in the movie that it's it's a, a magical little world that's just you, we're never going to see it again, right? It's just like lightning in a bottle, and then yeah. no more. Yeah, it was you know, John Balick, who's in the um, he's a gentleman who competed in the early to mid '60s and then became a photographer and publisher and published. He finally bought a publication called Iron Man. And was the, uh, the owner, publisher, editor for, for a couple decades of it. And, and he had come from Chicago and he had said, you know, he goes, um, that area, you know, Southern California area, Santa Monica, Venice, it was kind of the closest thing they had to Greenwich Village on the West Coast. <clears throat> and I think, I, I think that's very true, you know, in terms of, of artists flocking there because the rent was cheap. Um, and, um, you know, just living, a life outside of the mainstream American life. Yeah. Yep. Bunch of strange subcultures rubbing up against each other in Venice at that time, including <laughs> this one. Yes. All right. Now we got a picture of you, the young you. Yes. Uh, for the listeners, uh, we've got Joe Weeder talking to a guy called Mike Menser, who is kind of a philosopher intellectual of bodybuilding, but also a top competitor. Maybe he, would, he had just done a seminar or something. And Mark Martinez, my guest, is looking at the camera right over Mike Menser's shoulder. So tell us about this shot. <clears throat> the funny thing was that morning in the gym, uh, 
you know, it's depending on my school schedules when I could make it in the gym. And I liked being able to get in in the mornings because it was less crowded. And that morning, you'll, you, you know, there was a photographer uh, named Craig Dietz, and he was taking shots of another top competitor, uh, a guy named Danny Padilla, and then Mike Menser. And then they were a lot of shots with, with Joe Weider there. So this was kind of how um, the myth was perpetrated was <clears throat> you'd see these guys training, obviously, because that was their almost job, so to speak. And then when it came time for magazine photos, Joe would come in and then Joe would pose with the guys like he was there all the time, you know, pointing out how to do this certain type, you know. And so when I, when I meet people from other parts of the country that actually thought Joe was there and it's like, well, yeah, the running joke was guys would make fun of him. Um, I mean, in a good natured way, like, you know, you know, Joe was in here yesterday showing me how to, you know, you know, turn my wrist a bit to make this curl perfect. And, but it's sold, right? Um, but anyway, this, this morning was a photo shoot with, uh, Danny Padilla and Mike Menzer and Joe Weider was there. Craig Dietz took the photos and it was kind of like a relatively normal morning in the gym. It wasn't until I was making this documentary that my friend in New York, he's a lawyer named Scott Murphy and he's, you know, as a lawyer, he does a lot of tracking and he, and he, and he goes, I was looking online. He goes, is this you? I'd never seen that photo until he showed it to me a couple of years ago. I had no idea it existed. Um, again, I don't know if that photo ever appeared in the Weeder magazine. I would, I, I would think that it didn't because I was, you know, up until probably the early 80s still buying the magazines. And I figured, okay, this thing would have shown up by then, but maybe not. But uh, yeah, so that's one, one morning in either late 1977 or early 78. And uh, there I am. Wow. Wow. Now, I got to ask this question. So Menser here is so ripped. What was the situation with steroid use there? So one story I hear from the old timers is, oh, we only took a cycle like eight weeks before a contest. And most of the time we were not on uh, gear. But I, I wonder about that. Uh, maybe you know can kind of kind of set the record straight. They they were more moderate back then, but I I would say I would say it was, and they made no bones about. There was no secret. And in fact, uh, one of the first days that that I was at Golds, uh, there was a guy who was a um, a training partner of Robbie Robinson, and 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 uh, he had just come back from Mexico because they would drive down to the pharmacies in Tijuana and load up, and then drive back and. He was distributing what, whatever the guys needed. And you have to remember back then they weren't illegal. So, <laughs> um, you know, wasn't that big a deal. I've heard anywhere from 12 to 16 weeks was more the truth and they would go off. I mean, the guys, I would, I mean, I haven't followed bodybuilding in so long, but I hear they're on them year round, which is probably why guys are dying in their, you know, even twenties, uh, you know, twenties and thirties. But I think it's a combination of a lot of things. But I would see the guys get larger. I mean, this is, a, this is, I think Danny and Mike were actually getting ready for a show, which is why they do the photos when they start getting in the top shape. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. So they were, yeah, they were definitely on. And this, the, the, the prevailing wisdom back then seemed to be anywhere from 12 to 16 weeks that they'd be on. 
And back then, the guys would actually, you know, get bigger and more ripped. They weren't, they weren't dieting off a lot of fat. They weren't guys that were bulking up and then they would have to lose weight, strip down. It was almost reverse. Um, but, um, yeah, that was a dirty you know, little secret. I think the guys, you know, when they're off cycle, like I think even in like in your film, you can see a lot of variation. In, for example, how Ken Waller looks at different times and, and sometimes you can see he's pretty smooth and, um, you know, doesn't look nearly as good, especially like when you're wearing clothes, like if you're that big, you look kind of, you actually could look fat. Yeah. <laughs> like even Arnold can look fat wearing clothes, right. even though he looks great without the clothes on. Just seemed like there was a lot of, for some guys, there was a lot of variation between when they were on and off in terms of how ripped they were, for example. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. And it, and it was, you know, and that was the thing. I think, um, it was, they didn't seem to really care that they didn't look like Superman every day of the year. It was, it was about the actual competition and it's like, okay, well, this is part of the process. I'll work on my weak points in the off season. Um, I'll, I'll eat within reason. I'm not going to eat like a maniac, but I'll eat within reason. And then when it's time to lock down the diet and go on the stuff, then, then I know that my hard work will show. And that seemed to be, that's, that's a total paradigm shift. I think of the thinking of, of guys that feel they have to look that way all the time now, because that goes beyond just the competition. Those are, I think, other, other, um, motivating factors going on there. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Mark, because I, one, one of the things that occurred to me having lived through all this is that bodybuilding kind of made it okay for men to care a lot about what their physique looked like. Whereas, pre-golden era or even through the golden era, most American men would have just been embarrassed to say something like, oh, I got to build up my biceps or something like this. But this bodybuilding movement and also like, I don't know if you remember a movie called American Gigolo with- uh, Oh yeah, Richard, Richard Gere. They show Richard Gere working out with gravity boots and dumbbells and laying out his Armani jacket and ties and suit uh, shirts. I'm caring a lot about his appearance and he's a super successful heterosexual uh, gigolo. So it's a, at some point it got normalized for men to care about uh, their physique and how they looked. And so now you have guys going to the gym, not thinking like a one for one week of the year, I'm going to look like Adonis, but actually just throughout the course of the year, I want to just look good. And somewhat different mindset as you said yeah well yeah, again i mean because yeah american gigolo was what early 80s and then you think today i mean obviously like you said it now it's it's so mainstream and so ingrained in our culture that now there's manscaping products right i mean <laughs> right. i mean could you imagine that like uh you know in 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 19 you know 72 or 19 you know, 1981, a manscaping product. It's, it's, it's now it's normalized, you know? So. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the, for, for some of my listeners who are, you know, professors in sociology right. and humanities and social science and stuff, I, I think one of the most interesting aspects of what we're talking about, you might just say, oh, we're just talking about some weird cults or subculture that exists in the seventies. And these guys are freaks. In fact, it kind of took over America. Like your son in high school is probably like lifting weights in part because of uh, pumping iron and and all this stuff that happened in the seventies. Yeah, you know it's it's so it's well it's 
I, you know, bodybuilding for, I think, a, a lot of people, I think it, it jumped the shark. I mean, the culture's still there and it's huge and it has its own, it's so huge. It ha- it, it's a huge business. Um, but my son and his buddies, they were doing like CrossFit in high school. Um, and um, they, they saw lifting as one, as, as getting stronger and, you know, obviously helping their self-esteem and feeling confident about themselves. But in terms of like um, muscle for muscle, say, um, they couldn't understand it. Um, yeah. You know, so it's kind of flipped in that way. But then again, there's the hardcore bodybuilding war. That's, you know, now, now the top competitors are weighing 300 pounds, you know, with no body fat on stage, you know? That's- yeah. I, I think one of the reasons I like guys of my age kind of prefer golden age bodybuilders is they, they look a little more normal or aesthetically appealing to me than the current super monstrous guys that are the top bodybuilders. Oh. I would also even say that like the top crossfitters, now some of those guys are on here, but a lot of the top crossfitters are not that far off some of the smaller golden age guys in size, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, their, their physiques are really impressive. You know, I remember, I don't know if he's still competing, but Rich Froning. Um, yep. yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I go, there's probably tons and tons of guys that say, Hey, I wouldn't mind looking like that. You know? Um, yeah, yeah just a, a fit looking, you know, muscular guy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Froning would be like on the small side, I think even for like a professional guy in the seventies, but still it's, 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 it's within the range. It's, he's definitely much bigger than any normal guy you'd see walking around in the seventies. Right. Right. Let me go to another photo. So Here's Mr. Aesthetic. You mentioned his name earlier. His name is Frank Zane. And for the real guys that are sort of mass fanatics who really like big bodybuilders, they think of Frank Zane as kind of frail and skinny. In fact, maybe Froning could be like more muscularly dense than Frank Zane. But uh, here he is in his favorite, a famous pose. I think this is called the vacuum, where you can just really see the, just how chiseled he is and just how perfectly proportioned every part of his body is. Yeah. And they, they, um, Frank was, um, or is one of his competitive days. He's a, a very, a very nice guy. I would see, um, I saw Frank at, at world gym when I switched to world gym, when Ken sold golds and he was in there most mornings, a very quiet, well-spoken man. He was a, um, school teacher. I know he got his, I think he got his, um, master's at Cal state LA and his PhD, um, uh, think it was out near Palm Springs. I'm trying to think of what state university was out there. Maybe Loma Linda. Any, anyway, uh, he was really, really into the mind muscle connection. Um, but another thing too, though, for people that didn't see Frank Zane in person up close, he was a lot larger than people gave him credit for, uh, you know, cause, um, he was friends with the two guys that were managers at world gym at the time, a gentleman named Zabo. Kazuski and uh, Eddie Giuliani and they were all buddies and um, they would talk and I'd be there in the morning with one of my training partners and you would stand next to Frank and you know he was about you know I, was, I think we were about the same height about 5'10 or so but you know for people that said he was small I think everything was so in proportion that you didn't realize how large he was 
Um, I mean, of course, he's stepping on stage against other professional bodybuilders who are weighing outweighing him by 20, 30 pounds. But, um, uh, you know, if you saw him walking across the street, like most laymen would say, holy cow, who's that? Um, yeah. Yeah. Now at 510, he would, would he compete under 200? Yeah, he'd be right at the limit. I think, I think, um, he would always be anywhere from, I think his, in the early eighties. And I really liked his look when he, I think, I think he had stopped competing by 83 or 84, maybe. I think 83, but he was, um, he was probably high 190s in the early 80s. And I like that look better than the 70s when he won the Olympias because he was, I think they said he was at, at the heaviest, about 190. But uh, yeah. So it's at 5'10, 190, even though he's like really low percentage body fat, I, I think like Froning could be more dense, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No doubt. I'm, yeah. I'm sure he probably carried more B. And it, it's just amazing to think of how the aesthetics changed. So, yeah, I think nowadays any guy, you know, who could have like the Zane 5'10", 190 proportions would be like, I'll take that in a second. Yeah. So this is a photo of a French bodybuilder named Serge Nubray, who I always thought in terms of aesthetics and seems like every single picture I've seen of him, he's just ripped. I think he's just genetically gifted. Um, I always felt he had one of the best physiques uh, out there and didn't maybe didn't get the credit that he deserved. I agree. I agree. And it, it shows you just um, how, subject, how subjective it all is because, uh, yeah, I mean, for people to look at this photo, it's just mind-blowing, you know? It's just In the 70s, to see that, you just wouldn't know what, you know, like you would say like, oh, like those weird little marks that when they draw Captain America or, you know, something, it's like those little things. Now I know what they are. Those are real like features of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just, yeah, just, just amazing. And, and I, and I agree. I mean, um, how do you say one guy's better than the other when you're not doing anything objectively to, you know, no, no one crosses the finish line first. No one jumps higher. No one even lifts more weight. It's just, uh, what, certain judges decide to see and mark down on a piece of paper. So like, yep. like figure skating, I guess, but even that they're doing something. That's so here's mean. a photo of Robbie Robinson. This is a very imposing, it's a full page photo in the original, I think the original pumping iron book. And he's facing the camera. And again, when I saw, when I like was flipping through this in the bookstore, I was a kid and I saw this, I was just blown away because Robbie is just massive in this picture, he, but yeah. he's sitting down relaxed. Yeah. Yeah. Just sitting there. And then he obviously had that style of, of dressing, you know, just so, so Venice, you know, you know, the, the, the beads and the ripped shirt and. Yep. Incredible. Now, did you, did you try to get him for your movie? Cause he's in the movie, but he's not, I don't think you interviewed him, right? Yeah, I did. I, there were several guys I, I tried to get, um, and, uh, you know, who knows what goes through their mind. I, I did have other people speak with them you know like bill grant or ken waller like you know hey we're we're participating in this you know we think we think you should you think you'd have fun it's kind of an archi uh, archival piece but yeah he didn't um i'm trying danny danny padilla i wanted to get because he was a, a a big part of the of the santa monica golds but yeah it would have it would have been uh nice to get him would have been great to get danny because he's got 
a fantastic sense of humor, uh, you know, great insights. When I first saw this photo as a kid, I almost thought they kind of on purpose put, uh, there's a white guy in the background working out who, you know, he's not unathletic or unfit, but clearly like is like almost like from a totally different level of, of development as Robbie. And it's almost like a contrast between like this guy sitting in the foreground and this guy working really hard. In <laughs> oh, I know. I know that could just be George Butler's eye too, but, uh, yeah, yeah, the top guys were just, yeah, from another planet. Unbelievable. Okay, so here are the three. This is uh, Butler, Gaines, and Arnold, and a pretty small-looking Arnold, like, uh, you know, way off his, con seems like way off his contest size. Yeah, yeah, so, um, yeah, there's, um, you know, Charles Gaines on the far left, um, George Butler in the middle, and then, and then Arnold, and I know the story went that, I mean, Pumping Iron wouldn't, the movie wouldn't even have been made because Arnold wanted to just retire. And George Butler, who wanted to make the documentary, said, you know, it's not going to work unless you're in it, you know, and, uh, you know, we'll try and get some money to pay you to make it worth your while. And, um, I mean, it was a, a struggle. But uh, the, yeah, I mean, I think you look at those one, obviously Arnold being the figure that would be able to attract the attention and had that charisma. And then two guys that, uh, you know, Gaines is a, is a wonderful writer and um, George Butler, filmmaker, and um, and they had connections within, uh, within the New York literary world and the art world to, um, to, you know, to kind of move some mountains to, to get that done. Um, yeah, I just, uh, you know, I, I, I told, I told Charles and I said, I go, it took me decades for me to realize, um, that my, my love affair was bought with bodybuilding probably wasn't so much bodybuilding itself, the world that you wrote about, you know, the pros. And, and, uh, he had said he kind of, he goes, I kind of had a, had, had to approach it like a, um, a sun also rises type approach. You know, because I had to think of that in my head as like some kind of, you know, I'll use these bodybuilder guys as think of them as expatriates separated from America and, um, and take it from that. So, yeah, those guys, um, yeah. Yeah. Beautifully done. I, I recommend the, the writing of in the book, Pumping Iron, not just the photographs. It's, it's really beautifully written. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. So, Mark, I should have done this earlier, but. I want to play now a little trailer um, for your documentary. Again, apologies to the people who are only getting audio, but at least you can hear what people are saying. Uh, I really recommend for this episode you get on YouTube so you can see uh, all these photos and video that we're sharing with you. There's a feeling back then that, that I don't know if anybody will ever understand. It was as close to Greenwich Village on the West Coast that we had. It was the last stop before jumping in the ocean, <laughs> is what the reputation was. California itself was a, a stunning change for me from any place else. And it had what you can't buy, uh, which is a, um, a gestalt, a, um, a feeling about it. And the will to train there felt like, totally like 
you just fell down with a parachute to the perfect place. Well, what it was like was magic. You know, it was almost better than any reality that I would have imagined. It was like a series of dominoes falling, and if one of them hadn't, none of this would have happened. I mean, just this perfect synchronicity of um, good luck events. The world that I lived in for those years was the best world I ever lived in. I uh, I love that quote from uh, from Grant. Oh, the, yes. That world was, what did he say? That world was the best, that world that I lived in was the best world or, sorry, something yeah. like that. That I ever lived in, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Talk, talk to us a little bit about the struggles that you went through in getting that documentary made. I mean, obviously, always, I, I, my understanding is making a documentary film is just always an incredible struggle. Yeah, it's... um. You know, because it's always about one, even being able to pitch it, you know, and this is, you know, this is really a hundred percent homemade. I mean, there was the, the only pitch that I ever really made was, was to a gentleman that I, um, um, I found out about through the TV station I was working at at the time. He was, um, he was on a public service, public access show on a Sunday. And he was a local businessman who also ran, ran a cancer foundation, but he did life coaching. And um, his business, his office was in the same city as, um, as a TV station or, or the, that I worked at, which was in, in Oakland, California. So I contacted him via email and then also left a message and didn't hear back um, for about at least a month or so. And he had called me back and we set up a meeting. And uh, he talked for like more than an hour and it was really wasn't even about the documentary. It was, it, the, I truthfully, even though I'd been kicking around a documentary, the idea for this really didn't come out until uh, the gentleman's name is Mike Murphy. Uh, he and I had probably had a couple conversations and then he says, you know, what do you really want to do? You know, I, I, you know, I know you have your job, but what do you really want to do? And this came out. So, you know, he said, well, I'll, you know, I'll see what I could do. So he actually um, gave me the initial seed money, uh, which uh, uh, gave me the opportunity to actually fly out Bill Grant from New York and Ken Waller, who was in Alabama at the time, and you're still there. Um, Ken Sprague, who's living in Georgia with his wife, um, Rudy Hermosillo, um, who was in Florida. And then bring Dave Dupre, uh, rent a studio. And those were the initial five interviews. So, you know, the, and, and it's always been a struggle because, um, you know, uh, you have to track down when you're going in the past, especially in a niche thing like bodybuilding, where there's not a lot of, a whole lot of, um, stock footage. It's not like, you know, calling through NFL or major league baseball highlights, right? It's like not much exists. So you, uh, you know, uh, and then actually convincing guys to, to get involved. Um, it took once you got a few guys and then they would contact other guys, then it kind of made it easier. And I knew the people that I wanted to get from the time frame didn't get all of them, but I thought I need to get enough to where I can give a, a nice, uh, you know, range of, of views or opinions, you know, to kind of like give it, give it gravity instead of just talking to one person and then saying, well, it was, you know, it was so-and-so. You need to get different opinions. So anyway, that, yeah, struggle. 
all the way, even down to <clears throat> fair use, uh, you know, getting a lawyer to, um, you know, cause there's certain clips that I'm using that, um, um, the lawyer had to make sure we're cleared fair use, right? Is it transformative? Am I not just ripping it off, so to speak? So, um, yeah, still rolling the boulder up the hill. It, it definitely comes off. It's, it's apparent, I think, to anybody who watches that it, it was a labor of love. <laughs> so thank you. Congratulations. Thanks. So here's the cover of the book. Uh, I think maybe not the one that I have. Is this the original cover? This is the original. And that's uh, Ed Corney. Yep. Um, yeah. Who is described in the book. I believe it's when he won the, um, the Mr. Universe contest in Baghdad, Iraq that year that they covered. And, um, and then and that's the one thing about Charles Gaines. It's, you know, to, to, cause he didn't write this book for bodybuilding fans. He wrote it just to show what, what top level bodybuilders, their lives were like. And he said, uh, you know, it, you know, that they were there the night that he won uh, the top amateur prize in Baghdad, Iraq. And he goes, and then a few months later, we're visiting him as he's uh, uh, working as the door bouncer of a nightclub in San Jose, California, you know, uh, which at that point in time shows you that these guys do it out of love. They obviously don't do it for money. You know, yeah. they all had day jobs. They all had other things. So, um, this, yeah, I thought this, was, was, re this was recapitulated a little bit in the early to mid nineties when MMA, like ultimate fighting got started. And when it started, it was so small that, you know, the, the guy who was a world champion middleweight might be working as a bouncer outside yeah. a bar. Same thing. <laughs> So for me, that was actually what kind of like got me, I sort of transitioned from being interested in lifting weights and stuff like that into like doing, um, mixed martial arts and stuff like that. Oh, so, yeah. but, but in both cases, like little tiny subcultures that blew up into big sports. Yeah. And then the MMA, it got, um, <clears throat> oh, is that Serge Nubre? Yeah. This is a picture of, uh, Serge, which I found, which just shows how, cause he's so aesthetic. Yeah. But uh, in this picture, you can just see how thick the guy is. It's unbelievable. Like when I saw stuff like this uh, and also of like Sergio Oliva when I was a kid, it just blew me away. Like I couldn't believe people were that developed. Oh, I know. Yeah. Look, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's so, um, yeah, he looks so powerful there. I know that the first, the first photos I saw of, of Sergio Oliva, um, were taken by Wayne Gallish, the Australian um, uh, photographer and filmmaker really? who covers bodybuilding. And they were in a, a muscle builder in the late 70s. And, and it was almost cartoonish. I could not, I was look, it, it, I was looking at like you, like you had mentioned, you couldn't believe someone was that massively developed. And I was looking at the Sergio photos. As well as I'm looking at this Serge Newbreak photo here, but I was, I was like, something wasn't registering with my eye. And I'm like, what is it? What is it? What is it? And I'm like, oh my God, his arm, you know, his upper arm is the size of his head. Yes, like, exactly. Is that even possible? Yeah. So, yeah. This, uh, the pose that only Sergio does where he just pushes his, puts his arm straight up vertically. Yeah. Uh, but you, but you can see like his bicep tricep combo is like bigger than his head. It's insane. I don't, I don't think I have that in here. Otherwise, I'd show it to you. Um, this is Arnold and Franco Colombo. Check posing. Yeah. Arnold's doing, uh, what is that, side chest pose. 
Yeah, the original and, golds. Yeah, it's from Pumping Iron, I believe, from the book. Yeah. And I like it reveals just kind of how serious and analytical these guys are, right? Like if you look at yeah. the expressions on their faces, just like professionals, like sculptors. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, There's, this is the only Serge, this is the only Sergio Oliva picture I have, but it gives you a sense of how freakishly developed the guy was. Yeah, and that's 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 one of that's from one of the uh, from that photo shoot from Wayne from Wayne Galosh. That's he took that photo. Yeah, it's just amazing. You know, the Incredible. size of the forearm and the bicep, and yeah, peak peak of bicep to bottom of tricep. Sometimes it looks like that distance is as big as his head. Sometimes, yeah. This one I like. Uh, so Ken Waller, uh, who you interviewed at length, um, this is Ken standing with Arnold, and they're also both kind of check posing, checking, uh, inspecting themselves in the mirror here. Ed Corny's on the side. Yeah, yeah. This was. Um, I think that's. Um, I got that from. Um, it's a Gene Mose photo. Uh, John Balick, um was able to come through with a lot of photos. From from the original Gold's Gym and and Gene Mose who had passed had given all of his slides to John and this is from that series and this is in seventy five as you can see this is probably during the filming of Pumping Iron where they were both getting ready one for the amateur contest and then Arnold for the pro um, you can see Robbie in there as well yeah. Wow. One of the things that uh, really hit me, obviously Arnold was kind of the star of pumping iron and did a lot to popularize the sport. And one of the things that for me was that the word charisma wasn't really that widely used when I was a kid. And I kind of learned the meaning of the word charisma in like the example of Arnold Schwarzenegger because he was such a larger than life personality. You know, that picture you sent me of him wearing the hat on the beach, the, the yeah. kind of like uh, fedora, but he's like, he's like, you know, flexing his huge muscles and wearing this fedora. It's like, he's just a character and he just has a certain appeal. Everybody, nobody can, people can't uh, resist being charmed by the guy. And it's like the first real example of charisma that I had seen. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, I guess, yeah, confidence, you know, there's confidence and it's kind of like a Venn diagram. There's, there's, um, within charisma, there's confidence, but I'm not, but there's also other things that, that go into charisma. You know, it takes more than just confidence. And, and he definitely had it. I know, um, in speaking with, with, um, with Charles Gaines, he had mentioned the time that they were writing. I think it was an article. He said that they were writing for We magazine. He was writing for We. And it was leading up to writing Pumping Iron. And he said, we, we took Arnold and several of the other bodybuilders because they were all in New York for, a, for the Mr. Olympia and then whatever the concurrent amateur contests were being held the same night. And he said, and we took them all to the Algonquin Hotel. <laughs> right. <laughs> he said, because I wanted to take, you know, these, 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 you know, freakishly large muscular guys who, probably never heard of the Algonquin Hotel. He goes, but he goes, I knew right then. He goes, I saw how Arnold immediately sides up the room and and knew what he didn't know exactly what it was, but what it meant. 
uh, you know, and he goes, he was always a quick study. Most of the other guys didn't get it, but he did like, okay, well, these guys, you know, the people that come to the Algonquin, you know, they're, uh, they're movers and shakers in another field. And it's important that I charm them and get to know them and impress them. You, you mentioned Arnold at the Algonquin and this is, uh, is it Gaines is writing? Um, yeah. Yeah, he, Charles. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, as you know, as we were saying earlier, he has real literary sensibilities. And for someone now reading that again in the book from the 70s, they, they, they would might even be getting an insight into what the literary world of New York looked like in the 70s, because I think people today don't necessarily know what the Algonquin Hotel is. Right. And, and again, too, uh, who even reads anymore? I mean, well, I mean, we know. I, I think less of the culture read, but you're right. Is if is the Algonquin and the Round Table? It's gone. Um, obviously, those figures are gone. You know the the, the Kurt Vonnegut's and uh, you know the Thomas Wolfe's and all those people. Um, and then, of course, the previous generation is the Algonquin. And I think that's I think that's um, the lasting, enduring success of of that book, Pumping Iron. Is um, it wasn't written for just the muscle head. You know, it was kind of an, an introduction to the rest of the culture for that. It just it just drew from a wider a wider swath of our culture, I think. Anyway, jo- Charles's experiences. So. Yeah, I uh, I recommend it. Uh, like, I'm probably repeating myself too many times, but I recommend it to everyone to have a look at it. I'm gonna I'm gonna just play a couple minutes here of video from the movie Pumping Iron. It's Arnold working out at Gold's. And then talking about how the pump feels when the blood rushes into your muscles. And this is a very famous kind of discussion by Arnold, which was actually somewhat controversial for a little while, but you'll see why. Good bodybuilders have the same minds when it comes to sculpting than it solves the rest. You have to analyze it. You look in the mirror and just say, okay, I need a little bit more delta it, a little bit more shortest so we get the proportion right. So what you do is you exercise. And put those delta dudes on. Whereas uh, an artist would just slap on some curing on, on each side, you know, and this is maybe the easier way. We, we go through a harder way to do it on a human body, you know. Yeah, I mean, obviously, a lot of children look at you and they, they think it's kind of strange what you're doing, you know. But this is the people who don't know much about it. You know, as soon as you find out about what the whole thing is about, they tell me it's just like another thing. I mean, it's not any stranger as. Going into a car and trying to go in a quarter mile, five seconds. I mean, that's for me strange. Now, for people who can't uh, see, this is Arnold doing concentration curls, pumping up his bicep, and now he's going to talk about what the pump feels like. The greatest feeling you can get in a gym or the most satisfying feeling you can get in the gym is the pump. Let's say you train your biceps. Blood is rushing into your muscles, and that's what we call the pump. Muscles get a really tight feeling, like your skin is going to explode any minute. You know, it's really tight. It's like somebody blowing air into, into your muscle. It just blows up, and it feels different. It feels fantastic. And it's as satisfying to me as uh, coming is, you know, as uh, having sex with a woman and coming. And so can you believe how much I am in heaven? I'm like uh, getting the feeling of coming in the gym. I'm getting the feeling of coming at home. I'm getting the feeling of coming backstage when I pound buff, when I pose out in front of 5,000 people. I get the same feeling that 
So, Mark, uh, probably you're familiar with that uh, clip. Um, now, do you feel like at that in that era, guys were uh, self conscious about uh, the homosexual, you know, charges of homosexuality and bodybuilding? They wanted to like kind of make themselves seem like hyper heterosexual. Oh. You know, um, I can only speak for myself. I, you know, in speaking with other guys, we, in hindsight, we laugh like we were so clueless as to think that how, how, how so many gay guys were around in that culture, which makes perfect sense because it's a lot of well built, you know, guys. But we never, we never thought of it. I mean, it, I'll tell you when it dawned on me, I was in a bookstore. And I was, I was getting a magazine and it was, it was one that, uh, John Defendis was on the cover, right? And, and it, it, it had him in a vacuum pose and it said, John Defendis, is he the next Frank Zane? And they showed like a side by side. So I'm picking up the magazine and to the left of me is one of my professors. <laughs> and he's, he's got like another muscle magazine and I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> and it, it never, uh, you know, it never dawned on me. And then, and I'm uh, guessing this professor doesn't trade. <laughs> no, no, exactly. You know, just a, a big bear of a guy, not, you know, nice trimmed beard, nice clothes and everything. But, and then I'm like, Oh, you know, and then, um, but it never did. I mean, I don't, I, I mean, I don't, in my experience, no, I don't know if maybe one guy spoke to other guys. But I, I, uh, yeah, I think we were all just so clueless as to think that, oh yeah, well, it would make perfect sense, right? Um, and and um, you know, I think outside of one incident, I don't think I was ever, uh, you know, even uh, approached or made aware of it. Uh, you know, I, I think Arnold rolling the cameras—that was, you know, that was just a stroke of genius by him. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I was t- totally unaware of this idea that you know, gay men were attracted to like bodybuilders until I saw maybe around the same time I saw the Rocky Horror Picture Show and there was that character, I forgot the name, uh, Rocky, maybe it's Rocky. The Right, the, right, right. The blonde so, guy and he's ripped, yeah. Yeah, and he's obviously kind of like a bodybuilder and then I kind of realized and then there's even a line that the main character, Dr., whoever the main character of Rocky Horror Picture Show is, he sings a song and in his song, he mentions a Steve Reeves movie as that's, that right. was, I guess, very stimulating for him. And I, then I kind of put two and two together. And until that point, it had just not occurred to me that any of this was of any interest to, to gay men. So I guess it was the same for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, our, our concern was getting stronger and getting muscle and then not realizing the ancillary uh, culture going on around us. That's funny. That's true. Yeah, it was Tim Curry, I believe, right? That was kind Tim of like, Curry. The, yeah, Doctor Frankfurter, maybe I forgot his yes, name. Yes, yes, yeah. So that was the first time I made the connection. The until then, I was just like, to me, it was more an extension. I I had been, uh, you know, I was a swimmer and a football player, and I thought just we just they actually got us into lifting weights. That that's an interesting angle, actually. That in parallel to bodybuilding for some of the international sports, like swimming was always a very international sport. Um, some of the Russian training methods, East German and Russian training methods 
leaked into the American sphere very early on. So swimmers were lifting weights before football players, actually. And so when I was doing age group swimming, even in the middle of Iowa, they had us lifting weights. And so I was already into weightlifting culture before, like I even knew there was a thing called bodybuilding because it came through competitive swimming. Yeah. Wow. So, and, and that was late seventies or early eighties? Yeah. 40s? This was in the seventies. Actually, I, I probably first touched a weight in like, yeah, mid to late seventies, something like that when I was in age group swimming. So, yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, I knew um, at, at my school, uh, at my high school, there was, you know, obviously a lot of lifting. But again, you know, uh, until I saw the book Pumping Iron, I didn't make the connection between bodybuilding and and weights any more than, you know, it was, it was more for sports like you. So a l- little, a little advanced, I think, at least relative to Iowa for their, did you, did your, yeah. sw- your high school have a good weight room already in the seventies? You, you know, it was, it was uh, pretty utilitarian, but it was, it was known as a, uh, um, a Southern California high school football power, but <clears throat> I was surprised that the, uh, the facilities were so meager, but you know, the booster club would always try and get more Olympic sets in there and, and what not. Um, but, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure right now they probably have a, you know, a training center that looks, you know. When I went to my high school for one of my reunions, not that long ago, maybe 10 years ago, they had just unbelievable facilities like these, you know, the big power cubes where you can squat and do Olympic yeah. lifts. They just had row, this huge cavernous room with row after row of these power cubes. Just unbelievable. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We've come, we've come a long way, man. Yeah, sure have, sure have. I, uh, um, yeah, and uh, I, I was I was talking to to one of my buddies, and and I said, yeah, I'm going to be speaking with a guy who's who's a physicist, who's a Cal, who's a Caltech and and Cal grad, and you know did some time at Harvard and the Super Collider, and I said, and and yet he has a little bit of interest in Golden Age bodybuilding. I said, so that I go, uh, I that that combo alone um, fascinates me. Uh, oh. <laughs> I, I love it. I mean, it was, it's big, just a, was a big part of my adolescence and growing up and, um, same for you. And, um, I'll tell you my one, like, I didn't know any of these famous guys that we were talking about. I just knew them through the magazines and seeing them, you know, reading about them. The one guy that I met, I, I guess I briefly met Bertel Fox. I think I told you about that, but I met Arnold because when we were training at the Caltech weight room, one of the local LA guys who worked out there told us that, oh, he works out, I think at World Gym, which was then owned by Joe Gold, but it was World Gym, down in Santa Monica around this time. So we just decided we'd go there and see if we could just meet him. Met Joe Gold, uh, got a t-shirt and said hello to Arnold and this other German guy, Joseph Wilcox, who was a Mr. Universe. Right. They were doing inclines when we came in and, and Arnold was in very good shape. I think he was probably getting ready for a roll or something because he looked, he looked cut out of glass actually when we saw yeah. him. So uh, that's my, that's my closest brush to all these guys that you trained with for years. Yeah. Well, I saw, yeah. I mean, I saw Arnold first time, I think it was in 77 and he'd already retired. So he was running and really, really lanky and lean and running. And then um, by 1980, when he started getting ready for the uh, Olympia, you could start to see some of the transformation. You know, it was getting a little, a, a bit larger, but, um, yeah, uh, it's, so it's, uh, to think of that, I mean, world gym, I really enjoyed world gym. Um, you know, I was a member there from like 79 to 85, nice and quiet, nice and clean. 
just a different environment. I, I haven't been into a gym in a while. I usually just trained at home, but um, there's so many more people in the gyms now. You know, I don't, I don't know if I'd like to yeah. you know, stand around waiting for equipment all day. Yeah, me too. I'm, I mostly work out at home too now. I guess we're old guys, but you know, you and I have lived through this whole transformation of American culture. And I just want to say to the academics who are listening to this, you know, things change. It's, uh, it's hard to have a feel for it unless you live, uh, I basically would say, unless you live through it, right? Otherwise, like you, you can't right. really fully understand how the world looked in 1970 versus today. Right. I know. I, 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 I fear hopefully not. Hopefully we didn't lose your academics within the first two minutes. No. <laughs> but, um, I, yeah, I was, I was, um, trying to explain to someone and, uh, it was, it was a story about the Gold's Gym t-shirt of how Rick Drayson had made the design and didn't get any money for it. But at the time they said, well, you know, Gold's Gym had less than a hundred paying members at that point. Uh, Ken Sprague says, I think I gave him like, you know, 50 bucks off the gym membership and he gladly took it. Um, you know, I go, it's, it's hard to, to, to believe that you didn't see those t-shirts too much. Um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. People don't, you know, people are looking at it in hindsight where they're looking at a world where Gold's Gym has 600 locations around the world and everyone has those t-shirts and they can't imagine a time where, oh, this gym was like, a couple weeks from closing down and being turned into an antique shop, you know, it's kind of hard to, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of hard to go back in time. Like you said, if you, if you haven't lived it or been through it and seen the transformation, you wouldn't believe it. So my other story that I, I enjoy telling people, which people can't believe now, but I was in the trainers, trainers room, uh, physical trainers room at the Caltech athletic complex. When I was a college student, this would have been like 85 or something. Uh-huh. And I had a pulled muscle in my leg and I was sitting on the training table. So I was elevated a little bit. And this woman who was the physical trainer was like looking at me from the front. And so she's looking at my knee from the front. And, you know, if you have well-developed quadriceps, there's like a a, a bulge that the two heads insert above your, your knee. And she looks at me and she says, yeah, this is really swollen. And I was like, no, no, that's not the injury. Those are my quadriceps. And this is a physical trainer. Her job is to like mostly treat football players. Yeah. And uh, she didn't know the anatomy. She didn't realize those that was like the normal development of a strong quadricep. I was just shocked. And then years later, people started using the slang word swole. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so funny. So uh, it's just crazy. I I had to explain to her like what 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 the quadricep was basically. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's funny. Unbelievable. So, Mark, um, I've kept you a long time. You want to tell us, do you have any new projects ongoing? Anything you want to say about the documentary? Well, yeah, you know, right now the documentary, um, it's it's on um, it's on Amazon Prime. It's on Tubi. It's on another streaming system called Popsy on Plex. Also, Thrills TV. And then it's going to be on... Well, it's going to be on Thrills starting in March, and then it's also on Nuclear TV. These are all streaming systems. I am, you know, kind of in a, a standby pattern on my next project. I really wanted to do something on 
the music culture of Southern California during about the same time frame and the and the uh, the rise of K rock and how it affected um, music playlists. But it's really hard getting guys to want to speak speak to you, especially if there's no financial backing or any sort of compensation involved. And beyond that, I'm 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 working on probably some bonus material for a DVD for Dream for Dream Big. If we do do a DVD, and there's been some interest in it, I think um, from from an older audience, which this uh, will, would apply to, and so um, I'm I'm putting together some stuff that didn't make uh, a lot of stuff that didn't make the film because I interviewed guys for more than an hour and used basically two to three minutes of their interview, so there's a lot a lot there. So that's pretty much where where that is right now. So uh, you know, look for Dream Big on those streaming systems, and um, I'll update on my website to dreambigdoc.com. Great. I wish you luck with that. And and I do want to say this uh, this 70s music in Southern California project also is super interesting. And I remember K-Rock having a big influence, uh, at least on the Caltech campus. A lot of people listen to K-Rock and it was very unique. It doesn't, nothing like that exists uh, on, you know, on radio or anything like it anymore. So definitely do that one if you can get it going. Uh, yeah, I would love to, you know, uh, um, that's right. Since so with Caltech being in Pasadena and K Rock being located in Pasadena, it yeah, they were the again, it's it's here's another thing where it would be so hard for people to realize what it was like. I remember um the early stages of K Rock, they were they had no commercials. They would just collect money, go on the air, transmit, and then I'd ask my older brother, like, Hey, where'd they go? It's like it disappeared. They're static here. And he goes, Yeah, he goes, They'll be back in a few days. So I remember the first commercial I heard on K-Rock and even at that early age, and this had to be like mid seventies or so. And I was some part of my brain understood that, okay, good. They're here to stay, but something's going to change, you know, because now you're beholden to a commercial interest, but that's what makes the world go round. But, um, yeah, I know. I, I really, I, 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 you know, I've got to make another push into that and recontact guys because. K Rock was so far ahead of the rest of the country that I think once they reached a level to where they, I think they were bought by Westwood One, um, which was I don't even know if Westwood One is around anymore. Yeah. Um, but they were obviously a, like a holding company or a, or a network that music that was being played in Southern California was now going to be part of a programming list for the rest of the country and then the rest of the world, and that was kind of like a a, a changer. So again, you know, another seminal moment that, uh, you know, takes place and changes culture forever. So yeah, thanks. Um, Great. Hey, I, I, I'll just end with one thing. My wife is a professor of literature and film. And one of the areas she researches is documentary film, mo- mostly about Asian documentary film, not right. what you do, but through the course of her work, I, I've met a fair number of people who work in documentary film and, you know, it's a struggle, but it's an art form and you're producing stuff of lasting value. So I just want to just encourage you to keep going and, uh, you know, uh, great accomplishment, really enjoyed dream big and I'm, I'm sure you can do it again. Well, thank you. Thank you, Steven. And, and, um, yeah, you know, I was listening to a podcast with, um, Ken Burn, and someone had told him, they go, do you know what you do? And, and, uh, and he, he tells them, well, I, you know, do documentary films the guy says no you bring back the dead and uh, 
And of course with his, because he deals with historical figures, but it, it's, uh, yeah, someday we're all going to be gone. So it's you know, going to live live on in some way, shape or form. So, yeah. Um, yeah. How else can people who are 20 years old now have any understanding of what the 70s were like in Southern California, right? Otherwise it's gone yeah. forever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know it's like, it's now like when we were in grade school and like they're talking about World War II or something, we're just like, yeah. Right. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Mark. Well, th- thank you. Thank you, Stephen. And um, yeah, I hope we didn't bore too many of your, of your, of your listeners there that are. Oh, I'm sure they loved it. I'm sure they loved it.